Hi everyone, my name is Mal Surad and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. I am happy to uh, introduce the second episode that we're doing on uh, Dr. Kathy Guthrie and Dr. Dan Jenkins' new book, The Role of Leadership Educators Transforming Learning. And for this episode, we're going to do a dive into professional identity of leadership educators and available resources that are out there. So, Uh, Just for a quick introduction, uh, Dr. Kathy Guthrie is an Associate Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at Florida State University, and Dr. Dan Jenkins is Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. So uh, just to go ahead and get us started, um, Kathy and Dan, I know that you all both have a real connection to the city of Tampa, Florida. Uh, so for any future visitors, what is the best thing to do or meal to eat or place to visit in Tampa? Let's see. Well, so born in Tampa, uh, grandfather's born in Tampa, and uh, definitely you've got you to eat some Cuban food. Um, <laughs> it's the best the best place to eat it outside of outside of Cuba, um, and I'll I'll, I'll take uh, Tampa's Cuban food head to head with uh, Miami's any day. And um, I grew up going to uh, to two places, and well, gosh, probably three three or four places in particular. My uh, my grandparents had an affinity for uh, Cuban food because my uh, my grandmother was uh, was raised in Cuba. She immigrated from Romania, spent um, 16 years living in uh, Havana, Guantanamo, um, before she was able to get her and her family into uh, into the Tampa area uh, with with the rest of uh, her extended family and uh, we I'd say uh, hit hit La Terracita it's open 24/7 uh, so you can always get there that's uh, over near uh, the Raymond James Stadium where the Buccaneers play uh, Arco Arias uh, is also um, a couple blocks from there uh, down on Columbus uh, in that part of town Cuban Sandwich Shop is a is a staple that's on the north end of town. Um, just just near uh, off of Fowler Avenue. Um, you know, the, the Columbia is good, but that's a more kind of Spanish fare. That you have some Cuban influences, uh, and you can always find some good Cuban food in Ybor City. Uh, but that's the um, best place to eat a Cuban sandwich, best place to get some arroz con pollo, some ropa vieja, um, some perco asado. Yeah, you can't go wrong. All right. Dan, Jackie, you're making me you? hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Dan's making me hungry if I <laughs> All the good food. I was going to say the Cuban food also. I think it is excellent. I would also say, of course, those who aren't used to being on the water, Tampa has Tampa Bay and then, of course, um, the Hillsborough River. And there's actually a really great area that's um, being revitalized, the Tampa Heights neighborhood. It's a historic part, but it's right along the Hillsborough River. And there's this great, they turned this old warehouse into kind of a market, but it it's really has several incredible restaurants and a lot of open space and just right along the river. It's just really gorgeous. It's called Armature Works, and it literally is open maybe six months ago, and it's just a really great place to just to be and to really hang out with water right there. And you can see and you can walk. It's connected to the river walk. They're actually doing a lot of um, – new development. The uh, Vinick, who is the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning, actually is putting a lot of money into developing right around um, Amelie Arena, and they, they're calling it Water Street. And so it's really, things are starting to pop up all 
all over in this area. So it's really his idea, the next idea is I'm going to, I want Water Street to be on the map like Bourbon Street. <laughs> He's really putting a lot of, you know, effort and it's really neat to see how it's already starting to transform that area of Tampa. So lots to do, lots to do. Okay, cool. Well, I'd be happy to tell you the coolest thing to do in Clemson, South Carolina. Uh, it's, it's a really hopping place. So, um, no, uh, no water street here. So, okay. Um, Dan, um, so I know that you were, uh, I know that you were involved in a uh, band growing up. And, uh, so I was curious, what is the coolest thing that you got to do while you were in the marching band? Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, I guess, kind of extend that through, you know, uh, started playing, you know, trumpet in seventh grade and uh, transitioned to, to tuba a little bit later. Um, having played piano since I was uh, seven, it was, I was able to read treble clap, bass clap, uh, involved in jazz bands, big bands, um, you know, marching bands, concert bands, uh, wedding bands, you know, you name it. Um, but I, I would say the coolest thing uh, I was able to do probably uh, have in my freshman year uh, at Florida State where uh, I made the marching chiefs. That was a, uh, a, pretty, a pretty brutal uh, tryout, outfit, but we marched 26 sousaphones, um, and that, I think the band was, you know, around 400. The world-renowned Florida State University marching chiefs. Uh, but we went uh, to the national championship that year uh, in Tempe, Arizona, uh, to face off against Tennessee. We ended up losing the game, but um, what, how we got out there was they chartered a 747 uh, for the marching band and the uh, dance team, um, and they brought it to the Tallahassee airport, and we all loaded our, um, you know, as much of our gear as we could. Uh, everything else went cross-country on, uh, on a semi, and it was really quite a sight to have, you know, 400 and change uh, college students on their own 747 uh, with a direct flight from Tallahassee to, to Tempe. And I would participate in some parades and a, and a festival at the Diamondbacks Field um, and some other um, events. And then I uh, got to play on national TV and uh, meet some celebrities and, uh, and get on that field uh, during the game. So that was probably one of the most... I'd say that's got to be the coolest thing, and you know, being having that opportunity to play in front of that many people, um, and also you know, being able to play in front of the eighty-three thousand and change it at Doak Campbell uh, on Florida State's campus was always uh, an impressive event. Okay, awesome, awesome. So, uh, Kathy, um, to sort of continue our our theme here of Florida, I know that you uh, went down to uh, went down to see the Cubs play at Marlins Park. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this year, and uh, and so I think my big question is, there is this, as a little bit of context for everybody, there is this very, very large, very vibrant, um, some people I have heard call it garish, um, <laughs> statue that is in, uh, that is in, like, right behind center field mm-hmm. in Marlins Park, and so I'm curious, it lights up when, I believe, just the home team hits a home run, uh, mm-hmm. which from my following of the standings, is happening fairly infrequently this year. Um, <laughs> yes. And so uh, my question is, tell me about that statue. Is it as crazy in person as it seems in, on, on TV? It really is. And, and it's something that just seems out of place in a ballpark from my perspective, right? Like that's my kind of growing up going to Wrigley and then seeing something of that nature was just really um, bizarre. But it is. It's very 
colorful, and I don't know if it's when they hit a home run or if it's when they actually score. I'm not exactly sure what, but it, it did go off once that, that the game that I was at um, when the Cubs played the Marlins, and so on opening weekend, that was right around um, beginning of April, and it, it is it is crazy, yes. And I know that there is a lot of controversy and they're trying to get, some folks are trying to get it, you know, out of the stadium. And it does seem a little odd for me in my perspective. But, yeah, it is really wild. And it's massive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if, you, if you're listening, you haven't seen it, please Google this thing. It's really, it's really something. I think um, I, my understanding, Marlins Park is only a few years old, my understanding, the former owner, was, uh, whose name is Jeffrey Loria, was really behind it. He uh, like, made his money as an art dealer and wanted to have like, basically a, a functioning piece of art in the stadium. So I think that that was the idea. And it certainly, uh, certainly is memorable. So. And the park is beautiful. I was quite impressed with the park. It, just, it was really a great park to be in. But, yeah, that just was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, uh, now that now that we have uh, closed our uh, Florida theme section uh, section of our conversation here, <laughs> Kathy, I'm gonna let's let's just go ahead and jump into the deep end. I have a, a fairly impossible question for you to answer, so let's so let's just do it. Um, so I thoroughly enjoyed. I'm, I was a history major. Uh, I tend to sort of want all of the historical uh, all of the historical context for anything that I can get. So I thoroughly enjoyed the timeline that is provided in the first chapter um, on the development of student leadership programs. And in that section, you all present the pre- and post-industrial dichotomy of leadership development, notably centered around the publication of James Gregor Burns' Leadership in 1978. So some scholars assert that that leaves out non-traditional leadership perspectives. Now, so how do you balance the cornerstone nature of Burns' work, which is, I think, unassailable, with the marginalization that defined that era of scholarship? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I know all leadership scholars wrestle with and really think about. Um, but for me, it's really about honoring kind of where we have been with leadership. I mean, when you think about leadership as a discipline, it is still very young and still evolving. And, and this is true with any body, any discipline or body of knowledge that it should evolve. And so for me, I think about, yes, we should be understanding and knowing kind of where we've been so that we can inform where we need to go. And so I would be really concerned if we were still in that marginalization kind of era, but we're obviously not, and we have really shifted and are pushing beyond that. But, you know, and along with Burns' work, it's, you know, Joseph Ross' leadership for 21st century leader. I mean, that really, or a leader, what is it? I'm totally butchering the name of it, leadership for the 21st century. That's what it is. Um, but you know, in the 90s when he wrote that and shifting that post-industrial to, you know, industrial leadership, it's really um, thinking about how is it going from positional to relational. And that, I think, is the beginning of then how are we really looking at the different ways of knowing leadership. But I think, you know, any type, especially when you have a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary kind of field that is, um, that's something we should be wrestling with and we should continue to, um, push moving forward with that. So that is an impossible question because I think we all wrestle with it as we should, right? We really should be thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Kathy, so uh, w the second chapter focuses on the idea of leadership education as a professional identity. 
And uh, so how do you think the professional identity of leadership educator affects the work of leadership education? You know, we all have our own narratives, you know, with how our identities influence our, our professional work. And I think even more so, and we talk a lot about this in student affairs, right, about how our own, whether it's social identity or, you know, all of the intersectionality pieces that, you know, everything that we bring to the table that make up our identity, it really informs the work we do. And I think leadership education is, is no different. I think also this leadership as a discipline, we always encourage when we're educating, when we're teaching and learning, that the educator goes on this journey of learning with the students, and that brings in definitely our own narratives. And so thinking about how do we really stop and think about our multiple dimensions. So I think of, you know, um, Jones and McEwen's work with a model of multiple dimensions of identity. And, you know, that's really becoming a part of the conversation in student affairs as well as leadership education is how are we really bringing in all those different intersecting identities to then how does it show up in the classroom or in conversations about leadership because leadership, everyone has, you know, their own definition and their own framework in which they work from, but then that also definitely influences how then we show up as educators. And so it's a really, um, the chapter that we talked, you know, in the book, chapter two, just barely scratches the surface on this idea of professional identity and how our social identities play into that, but then also how, you know, this professional identity of leadership educator really plays a part in the teaching and learning of it. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So, Dan, also there in Chapter 2, uh, y'all uh, share a study of Corey T. Miller and Carrie Priestess uh, from uh, Priestess. That's a tough, uh, that's a tough possessive. From uh, uh, 2017 that found all uh, leader, leadership educator respondents themselves had, not all, but it seemed like most had, uh, leadership education experience prior to entering the field. And I wonder about how this impacts voices at the table in leadership education. So do you think that this in inhibits the diversity of perspectives in the field? And if so, what sort of impact do you see from this limitation? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, C. Miller and, or Corey and, and Carrie's uh, work there, you know, they, they expanded on, on their model of, uh, leadership educator professional identity development and um, we had um, collectively and you know worked closely w with them in the experience where they gathered um, a lot of the data uh, which was at a leadership education uh, academy uh, back in um, 2015 um, and then uh, they collected some more um, at, at the most recent uh, academy and you know it was it was an interesting finding that you know, folks had been in some type of leadership education or leadership, uh, you know, context or had some experiences, um, but a lot of them, which, you know, I think, you know, Kathy alluded to some of the previous, uh, on the previous podcast, you know, that uh, sometimes we come from that dominant, you know, uh, paradigm and, you know, we are in very traditional uh, or we come from oftentimes very traditional leadership contexts uh, and positions. And so, um, two, the experiences, uh, well, 
I, I'd say, um, however, if, if you will, some of the experiences vary amongst the leadership educators that, um, that we do find in uh, various institutional settings. Um, they do have more traditional experiences, but um, we do have some that have worked in residence lives and some that have worked in, uh, you know, as clergy, we have some that have worked um, in the military. And, you know, so we're kind of, um, kind of all over the place. And so looking specifically at, at Corey and Carey's model, um, I do think that, um, you know, we're looking at folks in that specific uh, domain of, of, for the most part, collegial uh, leadership education. And so how does that, you know, inhibit the diversity of perspectives? You know, I mean, I think the same thing happened, um, you know, in some of the other research that I've done where, you know, you, you do your best effort from a research methodology to collect diverse voices, but sometimes it's, it, it is uh, literally luck of the draw. And so I know that, um, and I'm hopeful that there are more diverse leadership educators than what some of the data uh, suggests, you know, which is, you know, 80 to 90% um, being white, you know, um, non-global, if you will, and, you know, there are certainly some movements and, and some uh, conversations uh, present in, in the field about, you know, in, integrating more global, more diverse, more culturally relevant um, perspectives, because uh, that's not something that uh, traditionally folks are bringing to the table. And so uh, I think it it is a limitation um, because, you know, we, it, it, there's a lot of enjoyment in the work that uh, leadership educators do based on a lot of research that, that we've done, but perhaps it's because uh, of those limitations that there's, uh, there's some blinders on, there's some silos uh, in the work that we do have, where the work that we do uh, generally occurs on, you know, college campuses and whatnot, and sometimes shielded from, uh, some of the other major issues and social issues going on around the globe. Okay, great, great. So um, I thought it was a, a pretty natural follow-up there. I, I enjoyed reading about your research last year in, in leadership uh, educator identity. And so uh, I thought particularly of note was the finding that leadership education is a helping field. And so I was curious about how, how you think that that helping nature contributes and or inhibits uh, the work of the work of leadership educators. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think that you know, it's 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 that in some ways servant servant learning uh, or servant leadership approach to to the work. Um, when I interviewed uh, these thirteen leadership educators, and they ranged in in uh, experience and and at different universities and and whatnot, but like you know. Like the previous question, um, you know, uh, it was not a uh, ethnically or culturally diverse sample, um, and that wasn't intentional. You know, I used a, a snowball sampling methodology and, and asked for folks to recommend to me great uh, exemplary leadership educators, and it just happened that the uh, that the pool of, of folks were, were were all white. They were a mix of men and women and ages, but um, you know that 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 happened. And so, uh, but one of the things that they did they did share was that they had this commitment to developing others, to making an impact on, on others 
lives. Uh, they had learned from great experiences with leaders, bad experiences with leaders or, you know, or bosses, um, and they were also uh, heavily influenced by you know, strongly held beliefs or, or values, and um, they wanted to, to make a difference. They wanted to make sure that their students didn't make the same mistakes that they did, um, that they uh, wanted to, you know, and, I, and sometimes I uh, will share this in, in my own classes, uh, borrowing from Gandhi, we say, hey, you know, we want uh, students to have the skills that they need to make the change they want to see in the world. And if that, um, if that's all that leadership educators do, then, uh, then they've, they've succeeded and uh, they want to, you know, change the trajectory uh, of others for the better. And so um, I think that that's probably, uh, I think it's a, it, it contributes. I don't think it, it, it inhibits their work. Okay, great. So, <clears throat> Kathy, to, to move on here to, to Chapter 3, uh, at the beginning of that section, uh, you observed that, uh, only a small number of leadership educators are, and the quote here is, are plugged into the most pragmatic resources for teaching leadership education. And then you all devote a lot of the rest of the chapter to outlining the existing resources. Uh, after reading through that, I'm left wondering, do you think that this plug-in-a-resource problem is an issue of marketing, market saturation, or of content quality? You know, that's a, it's a really good question as we were digging in and really there were resources that I had never seen before and I don't necessarily know if it's market saturation because there's still a lot more that needs to be explored. I think that there is, um, it is interesting when you think about how people come into this work, you know, that we have individuals that are, they solely identify as leadership educators. So that means they're teaching only leadership courses in the classroom or they're working in a leadership education office. Then you also have higher education professionals that come into being you know, into this work and being a leadership educator through other means. So they could work in housing, but a part of their position is leadership education or student activities and so forth. And so some of it, I think, is just nature of ease of finding information. And so well, it might not necessarily be marketing. It could be some of the marketing, right? Like, we do have, you know, organizations that try to organize the information, right? We have great resources with the Clearinghouse, and we have International Leadership Association and Association for Leadership Educators, but there's not, you know, it's sometimes overwhelming because there's a lot, but then also finding exactly what you need, where you're at on that continuum. And, and I also say continuum in the sense of not only what your job responsibilities are, but what you feel comfortable in where your knowledge is. And so thinking through, you know, is it that you're directly focused on leadership education or you're coming to another kind of, you know, through another route. And so I think with any profession, I think ours is extra complicated, I will say, because of the multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary work because we're drawing from all different disciplines and fields and professional organizations that a lot of professional organizations might have a leadership section and they might do a little sliver of that, especially if it's coming by, you know, route of student activities or housing, right? And so I think the complexity makes it more challenging for people to be completely plugged into these resources. And we, 
wanted to kind of try to tackle some of that. We know it's not, it's always rapidly evolving, um, but so that people had a place to say, oh, wow, oh, I didn't know that there were specific associations like International Leadership Association and the Association of Leadership Educators that focus on leadership. And, oh, I didn't know NASA had the knowledge community, right? And so also when other organizations are the main focus and the leadership is a part of it. And so it's really thinking, is it, you know, primary or secondary in kind of that professional development, but really wanting to provide some resources to get kind of folks starting to get plugged in. And then hopefully it will snowball that they can, you know, find even more and even find the gaps and say, hey, we need to have this so that we can really round out what I need to, to for my professional development as an educator. Mm. All righty. Yeah. All right, Dan. So uh, let's let's finish up here. Um, for how how would you suggest? I think that the way that y'all have organized the resources in the book is really helpful. So, I mean, one obvious answer to this question is you know buy the book, buy a departmental copy of the book, <laughs> have it as an option. Um, but, you know, outside of that, um, and, and even when reading through the book, there, you know, the information is, is, is there for folks in the book. But how do you think that an entry-level leadership educator without existing knowledge of what I would call a swirl of leadership associations go about distinguishing what would be helpful for them? What are, you know, what are some initial thoughts there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's putting yourself putting yourself out there um, and, you know, reaching out to members, uh, you know, member officers, uh, you know, if there's knowledge community or an interest group or, you know, the bigs and the SIGs, you know, it's, it's, it's taking those risks to, to reach out to uh, folks in those organizations uh, in, in some type of leadership, you know, role and, and say, hey, you know, this is, you know, where I'm at in my, in, in my career uh, or, you know, particularly if they're entry level, you know, I want to, I want to learn more. I want to, you know, uh, I want to develop as a, as a leadership educator. Or I'm thinking about getting into leadership education. And I'm a grad student. You know, what, what, what could I get from your organization? Tell me about your conference. What's it like? Um, you know, what types of uh, proposals do you do you generally have? Or you know, uh, could you give me examples of some proposals? Or what types of sessions do you tend to have at your uh, at your conference? You know, if it's if someone just getting started is uh, looking for something that's that's more practical or teaching oriented and there's you know there's particular uh you know events and and types of conferences and uh, regionals and things like that that would be that would be more appropriate if it's more you know uh, scholarship with respect to theories and uh, uh and research design and things you know there's other you know i would recommend other you know associations but but i think it's it's really um, putting yourself out there and, and trying to find, you know, funding to, to attend these uh, types of things. Um, you know, try to get to, you know, try to get to one a year. And, um, it, you know, it it really does, you know, I think about when I was a doctoral student and was trying to uh, garner uh, people to participate in the survey um, that I did for my dissertation. And, uh, that was one of my first introductions to these professional associations was trying to reach out to folks that uh, were the gatekeepers for the listservs uh, of each of these uh, associations or MIGs or SIGs or knowledge communities. And um, some, most were, were 
were gratuitous and, and gracious with, with offering a listserv. Others said, um, you know, send me an email and I'll, I'll send it out to the group. Um, but through that, I was able to get a better, a better sense of uh, what they offered through their websites. And but really, those one-on-one conversations um, are, are really helpful. And, and more often than not, you know, folks are really, really willing to mentor, to, to help new folks understand uh, what each group uh, or what each association offers. You know, um, if you're more into student affairs, you know, NASPA, CPA, um, you know, maybe more uh, appropriate if, if you're, you know, faculty or um, focusing on teaching and learning uh, more so than uh, or more often than, than not, then, you know, the Association of Leadership Educators, International Leadership Association, uh, you might find more folks you know, like yourself, but oftentimes, you know, I just went to a NASPA, uh, the 100th NASPA a couple months ago, and um, it was nice to be back uh, around a lot of student affairs professionals and um, and not as many faculty, <laughs> for better or for worse, and um, just to, to hear about some of the cutting-edge work that was going on there. And so, you know, it, it is a swirl, as, as you said, uh, but I think that with some intentionality and some fact-finding and uh, really reaching out and expanding one's network, um, it, it can be done. All right. All right. Well, that is all great information uh, from Chapters 2 and 3 of uh, Dan and Kathy's new book, The Role of Leadership Educators, Transforming Learning. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks again to Drs. Kathy Guthrie and Dan Jenkins. Um, you can get more information about our about the Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com backslash SA Lead on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email over to NASPLeaderPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Dan and Kathy. You're Thank welcome. you.